Welcome to episode 8 of Lars and Prize in Liverpool. My name's Lewis and over the next hour you're going to be hearing from three brilliant guests. First up in the dialogue we hear from Hollyoaks writer John Larkin and he'll be talking about his new play Cherry Jezebel and that's essentially a story about queer family but it's also inspired by Liverpool's drag community. Then in Queeros we hear from Ejel Khan from the Muslim LGBT network and he'll be talking about his activism and the issues that queer Muslims face. Now usually we also do a segment called Confessions from the Closet and that celebrates coming out stories but that's been replaced this episode because we're doing a crossover with the All Things Femism podcast and that's a podcast from the amazing Femi McCullough which looks at unheard stories and taboo topics so today we're going to be talking about shaming around periods and sex as well as discrimination that different minorities face and also just get to know Femi a bit more because she's an incredible human being and I'm very lucky to be able to call her a friend so yeah I'm going to shut up now and enjoy the rest of the episode so I'm joined today by writer John Larkin, and today we're going to be discussing his new stage play, which is Cherry Jezebel. Uh, but before we get started, how are you today, John? Uh, I'm all right, yeah. Yeah, I've just had an emergency coffee, so I shouldn't ramble too much. Uh, ramble all you want, John. That's what, what this <laughs> podcast is for. <laughs> but um, how have you been finding this new lockdown, now that we're coming out of it? Um, I feel like this one's been the worst of all of them. Yeah, I do too, myself. Right. The first, I feel like the first one uh, had a bit of novelty to it, didn't it? Because it was like, oh, crazy. It feels like we're in a sci-fi film or something. And then, yeah, it's just as it's gone along, I feel like it's become more and more um, tedious, more and more frustrating. Um, and just, yeah, it's it's like, you know, they say like when you're running a race and like when the end's in sight, it gets, it's, that's the hardest bit. I feel like that's where we are now. Definitely. I feel like we could just, we could almost see our escape and it's just yeah it's it's tougher than ever but we're nearly there we're nearly there well do you know what um cherry chesabel when did you start writing that was that in lockdown or is, is this something um, that you've had planned for a while no i've been writing it for years um i yeah I, i'd say probably also from conception to now i'd say it's been about two maybe three years um and it's still not finished really you know i always think with a play you, you're constantly rewriting and you constantly um you know you, you feel like you've got to a certain point within you uh, and you think oh yeah that's good it's like a solid finished product but then put it in a drawer come back to it like in a couple of months and you'll go oh no i need to change this i need to change that which is why um it's really useful to have a, a reason of it really i feel like that really helps with the process of developing it but that's the exciting thing that you've got coming with Cherry Jezebel, because you've, you're actually doing a rehearse uh, reason at the Everyman, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So it's really exciting. We just announced it this week. So um, that it'll be in July, you know, hopefully. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> else goes wrong. Um, it'll be in July. And yeah, the, the purpose of it is to sort of get the work out there because obviously these characters have all just been living in my head for the last few years. Um, so it's hard to be objective and, and know what works and what doesn't. So it's, it's a tester really, it's to throw it out there for an audience to watch and respond to and, and um, you know, f- see what works, what doesn't, and then that will hopefully help with developing it further. So tell us a bit um, more about the characters and story then. Yeah. So, um, 
it's 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 kind of the culmination of like I'd say the last ten years or so. I've been more and more um, not involved, but I've I've been uh, I've got I've developed friendships with a lot of drag queens in Liverpool, drag queens of the old school mainly. Um, so it was kind of before drag race became the phenomenon it is now. Um, it's it's the queens from that sort of era, just sort of before that hit. So um, I, I've found myself gravitating more and more towards them. Um, me and my, my husband as well. We've got a real interest in just people who are, uh, you know, a bit more um, unapologetically queer and fabulous. And, um, and uh, you know, I'm a writer, so I've always been drawn to stories. And the minute you walk into a club and you see a drag queen, you know, behind the bar... Uh, at the DJ booth or on the door or whatever, you're you're immediately going, oh, who's under the makeup? You know who, yeah, who's yeah. what what stories they're waiting to be told. So, um, I've I've always been more drawn to those types of people. So I'd say in the yeah the last few years, I've found myself you know closer in closer friendships with a lot of drag queens, and there's always been something bubbling up in me that I wanted to write about, but I've never quite really known what it was, um, and also. Uh, I started out at the Everyman Theatre uh, about 15 years ago now in my first play. And since then, I've been primarily working in telly and I've always been trying to sort of work my way back to theatre, but for one reason or another, it's never quite got there. It's never quite worked. Um, and then about about four or five years ago, about four years ago, I'd say, I made a concerted effort thinking, now, you know, I want to start writing a new play. I want to, I want to take this seriously, get something on. So I started talking to the everyman again about, you know, possibly coming back and the sorts of things that were exciting me at the time. So so we, we, we got talking about my love for queer stories, drag stories, um, and, you know, not not the kinds of, um, not the sort of cuddly rainbow-coloured unicorn stories that, that get told quite a bit, um, more the um, queer stories that are probably deemed less mainstream and less palatable um, and strangely it began its life as a musical about you know trans icon april ashley oh yeah yeah <laughs> um it's it's a strangely started out along those those that road really because i didn't know whether i wanted to do something talking about uh, the history of liverpool and april's involvement in that because um me and my husband have got like a uh, we developed a friendship with april over the last few last in the last decade um uh, What's April like, by the way? Uh, a, a fabulous, grand, stately, wonderful, with a very cheeky, dirty glint in her eye. <laughs> oh, really? She seems very like, yeah. royal, like she, she's an absolute queen. Queen, regal. Yeah. <laughs> fier- fiercely strong um, and fragile at the same time. But... But the first time, um, this is jumping around everywhere, isn't it? But the first time, the first time we met, April was in a really posh restaurant in London. We went to um, Bibendum. She's like booked us a table, and you know it, was, it had to be her favourite table. But she wanted champagne and all this sort of stuff. And, but when she arrived, she saw us, and she just gave us this sort of this nod with her head to, to to point to the table that she wanted. But the way she did it was one of the most scouse things I've ever seen. It was just like, it was just like one of those nods that says, yeah, get over here. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so that is very much still, still there with her. She's still got that sort of scouse spirit, which I absolutely love about her. Um, but anyway, yeah. So it sort of started life being a little bit about her. And then I was thinking, oh, do I want to write about April? Do I want to write about Liverpool's history? 
Liverpool's queer history. Do I want to write about the magic clock? You know, the pub. Do I want to write about the the um uh, the the um oh, what what's they call it now? Was it the magic roundabout or the carousel? It was a like a famous cottage in town. All kinds of stuff, anyway. Um, and the the everyman at the time were really excited about this idea that I might write something sort of grand, like a big musical. That was about April that followed her from her from her life in Liverpool to her her life working at the Carousel Cabaret in Paris and all that sort of stuff. And I started writing it, but I thought I, f- I felt like I was kind of I was going against something in me that that I really wanted to write about. And um, I felt like I was writing it towards it in a way. I was thinking, right, this is what people want to see. This is what people want to commission. So this is what I'm going to write. But I, I'm not that kind of writer. I sort of follow my instincts and I follow my gut and my heart. And what was really, the story that was really wanting to be told was something a bit more contemporary, really. And it was a bit more um, drawn from the queens that I was surrounding myself with rather than, you know, history and rather than things that I was reading about and immersing myself in that way. So, so Cherry Jezebel was sort of born out of that. So it went from being a big musical, a big flashy musical to something that was um, a little bit more, it was a duologue. It was two drag queens sat on stage telling their stories uh, about uh, a friendship that built up over the years, then crumbled. Uh, and then there was like a big tragic ending and there were musical numbers and I had a friend writing songs for it. And then it developed from that into what it is now, which is because something completely different <laughs> again, but it's still got the same thing at its core, which is all about queer family and it's all about friendship. Um, and it's all about, you know, fighting as outsiders fighting to find some sort of acceptance and some sort of love that's not necessarily there by blood, you know, they're going out and finding people who are as weird as themselves. Um, so that, so it's, it's sort of, yeah, it's gone through big metamorphosis over the years and now, now it's where it is, but I'm, I'm you know, I'm happy, as happy as can be. Um, I'm, I'm quite happy with what it's become. And I'm really excited for people to see, to see it. What I was saying, um, when I was reading, like what I was about in that, it sounded to me like Sherry and Hardy represented the old school drag and then Pearls was like, the drag race editor of dra- drag and it seems like that's going to be like a theme in it maybe like that kind of clash of modern drag and the old school yeah yeah it is it's definitely going to be that it's um so pearl is like 20 and cherry and heidi are like in the 50s and it's all about you know that sort of clash of two different generations um I'm like, I just turned 40 last year. So I'm kind of slap bang in the middle of the old school and the new school. I'm not quite in either of them. Um, so I often observe the differences between the two generations from from being stuck in the middle. So I was trying to trying to find a way to, to get that into a piece and put it on stage, really. Um, um, so Pearl, yeah, they, they don't quite fit in with the polished queens. Um they don't quite, well, they don't want to either. So Pearl's quite punkish in a way. Um, and so whilst Pearl is very much from that generation, they're not wanting to fit in with that generation. So they're a bit like a square, you know, a, what is it, a square peg in a round hole. So um, they're looking for family, looking for acceptance. So when they come across Cherry and Heidi, and Cherry and Heidi are very much from an extremely different generation, they, it's like they talk a different, they talk, speak a different language. Um, there's lots of clashes. There's lots of misunderstandings. Lots of misgendering. There's, you know, it's people learning to 
finds common ground, but in the end, they realise that they sort of need each other more than anything. But the, these are like things that I can imagine are going on in like the nightclubs, like where you've met these drag queens as well. I can imagine that their real life conversations that actually happen, <laughs> yeah, you know, like the misgender and stuff like that. Because I, I do find like with a lot of the older queer generation, um, some of them are still trying to get their heads around like this. Do you know what I mean? This new, um, it's not new because it's always been around, but you know, it's new language to them, shall we say? Well, there is new language. Um, a part of what one of the things that I want to talk about in the play is that. I feel like safe spaces to get things wrong and to do and to evolve and to learn are disappearing. I feel like I feel like there's, there's less and less space on social media to talk about these things. And you know, I feel like you only learn to accept things and to accept each other by making those mistakes and button heads a little bit. And it gets messy. It gets gets messy. It gets rude. It gets a little bit offensive. And um, but. That is the way through. That is the way through to, to sort of come into a point where you go, okay, yeah, all right, so I'm starting to get it now. I'm starting to get you. I'm getting where you come from. Um, I feel like I feel like the, the space to discuss that is being minimalized. So what I'm trying to do is put that on stage and put that and create that sort of space in a theater environment. Yeah, but that's that's true. That actually though, because I do feel like now, you know, if, if there isn't really anywhere where you can make mistakes, because if you do, you automatically you know, you're called out for a straight away. You're not given the chance to kind of, you know, make up for their mistakes or or evolve, as you said. It's uh, it's it's good. It's interesting. It's been a big it's been a big learning curve for me as well. Because as I say, I'm kind of in the middle of the two, so I kind of I come at it going, you know, oh my god, these people are so different. That these languages are so different. But by the end of it, you think, no, we've all got the same. We've all got the sort of same wants and needs. We all want family. We all want to find people who understand who understand us as you know queer people you know in the last 40 50 years we've took on so many battles and we're winning them and we've we've um you know we've come a long way but as a result i feel like there's a source of complacency there so we start turning on our own yeah um rather than having a common enemy to fight you know yeah yeah that's so true it's a little bit about that Going forward with the play, what drag queens did you speak to then um, that inspired you? So the main, so the two main characters, Cherry and Heidi, are primarily their voices are taken from two really iconic Liverpool queens. One is Lady Sian. Oh, yeah. Who um, is, um, you know, a staple of the scene for the last 30 odd years, I'd say. Um, you know, she's got the cyclic bingo at the Lisbon when we're allowed to go to the Lisbon again. <clears throat> um, but she's been around since you know the days of um, you know, garlands and stuff like that. She's fabulous. And the other queen that I've taken the voice from is Tracy Wilder, who's a um fabulous DJ, um, who's always been a staple of the superstar boudoir and is part of Sonic Youth as well. She's one of the DJs at Sonic Youth. So they're the two main characters that I've sort of drawn from and what I've done is because they're really good friends as well so what I've done is I've sort of taken their voices and the sort of um the basis the foundation of that friendship and built a story around that so the story in the play is separate to what's actually their real life story it's you know I've, I've made I've made my own I've, I've sort of t- embellished it and um took a lot of liberties and created a big story around that um but the voices are very much from those two. Um, but over the years, yeah, there's been so many um, queens on the scene that I've loved. Um, there's, um, you know, uh, Candy Star, who's like a Parisian 
drag queen who who spends a lot of her life in Liverpool. She's she's been a big inspiration. She's actually the poster girl as well. If you if you see the uh, the posters that they're using for for the play, that's from a photograph I took of Candy. Oh, so okay. she's the girl for it. Um, as well as um, Stella, who um, was a young queen from Dingle. Um, and Pearl originally started out as a riff on Stella, who's like a Dingle queen, salt of the earth, loud, brassy, unapologetic. But wh- whilst I was writing Pearl, I thought, but if I do this, then they're not very much, they're not very different from Cherry and Heidi, so there's no conflict there. So I decided to make Pearl very much uh, a creation of their own. So, um, yeah, they're very different to any of the queens I've ever met, really. Um, and um, yeah, there's, there's there's loads. I mean, people who aren't really around on the scene anymore. There was Dorian Come Quick from from the Masquerade, um, Crystal from the Masquerade, Auntie Marlene from the Masquerade. A lot of them have sort of moved on a little bit now. Um, and the Vivian as well. You know, I've known the Vivian for years. So there's bits of hair in there, bits of hair, fabulous wit in there. Before she became a fabulous RuPaul's Drag Race ambassador. It's mad because I remember when I first started going going out into like all the clubs that the Vivian was at like years ago. I thought. This sounds bad, but I thought the Vivian was like an old style queen. I didn't realize she was so young until she was on oh, Drag Race. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, I completely, I can completely believe the Vivian's journey because the minute I met the Vivian, I thought, wow, you've got your eye on the prize. Yeah. Uh, you know, I thought she's got to go places and she is, and she she absolutely deserves it as well. More about you, John. It, so you're a writer full time. And how do you find that process during coronavirus? Like, has it been hard for you? Uh, no, it's been a godsend. It's Has been it? absolutely yeah, yeah. So Jordan, yeah. So since lockdown, um, I've found myself being, uh, you know, more prolific and actually a bit more disciplined with my writing. And I don't know why. I don't know whether it's because I've got something massive that I'm trying to escape, i.e., the real world. <laughs> so it's made me actually enjoy the process a lot more. Um, so I've been yeah. So so since since last February March, I've been writing tons of stuff. So I've actually found it really helpful. Um, and um, me, you know, the, the, my regular job is uh, Hollyoaks, I write Hollyoaks. So that went off, that went off the air for a couple of months. But once that came back on, it was all hands on deck. You know, we all had to sort of jump in and make up for last time. So that's really kept me going. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, been, it's actually been really good. How did you get involved with Hollyoaks then? Um, well, growing up, my two big loves growing up were horror movies and soap operas. They were the two big things for me. So um, I always wanted to write both. And um, after back of my first play back in 2006, um, I got an agent and stuff, and she was basically saying, you know, what is it that you want to do? And I was like, well, it's TV. I love soap. I want to write TV. So we we, we, we just tried, basically. So we, we, we asked them, because I, you know, write a trial episode. This is back in 2007, I think. Um, and I wrote a trial episode, which was crap. They said no. And then um, I sort of went off for a bit, went travelling around the States, came back, sort of resettled, and then thought, no, I'm going to give it another go. And, you know, the mistake I'd made was that I hadn't really watched Hollyoaks before, <laughs> before I wrote that trial episode. So, you know, if you're going to go after the job, you have to treat it with respect. So I basically got as many episodes of it as I could, watched it, uh, fell in love with it, and then tried again. I said, you know, could I do another trial? And, and gave it a go. And this time he said, yeah. So that was 2008. So I've been there ever since. So I've been writing it for over, like, 12 years now which has uh, been a journey. <laughs> yeah, it sounds 
Well, what's the process like then when you're writing episodes? How does it work? Uh, well, it's uh, basically it's, it's it's sort of it's a five nights a week juggernaut that just keeps on rolling. So they have a they have a storyline team who um, they collaborate with the scriptwriters and and the producers, and they come up with the actual stories, and they'll write a month's worth of stories. Um, break them up into episodes and then divvy them up between the the, the actual script writers. So we'll all write a day each, basically. Um, and you get, you know, a new block of stories sent out every month. You'll be commissioned to write one. And it, it sort of goes through through that process. It's, it's just, it never stops every month. You know, there's, you're always surprised by how quickly the next batch of storylines turn up because you're so busy doing the last one. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 interesting. And it's... it's, it's uh, it's great for discipline. It's great for discipline. You really learn a lot about discipline because it's, you know, everything's to a tight deadline. It's going out on Channel 4, so you haven't got any time to be shilly-shallying around. You've just got to get it done and, and, and hit your mark every time. So it's, it is quite the learning curve for the writer. And what, what, what else, like, in future, say, would you want to, like, write for? Is there any, any other TV shows that you've been thinking of or...? Soap and horror have always been the big loves for me. So, so I'd love to, I'd love to jump into horror at some point. I've been developing a lot of original horror ideas, which I'd like to try and get rolling in the near future, if possible. That'd be great. Please, if you if you do, just create some kind of like drag horror film settings in Liverpool. Like it'd just be amazing. <laughs> yeah, it would be great, wouldn't it? I mean, yeah. Um, I'm really, I'm actually really naughty because I've never watched, you know, the Boulay Brothers Dracula, and I've been told. Oh my god, like, it's so good! Yeah, and now people keep telling me that it's it's made for me, but I've never got around to it. I did actually see them now in person. I was in LA a couple of years ago, um, and saw one of the shows, which was fabulous, absolutely fabulous. There was one of the drag queens came out dressed as um, Drew Barrymore in Scream. No way! Got, got murdered on stage. It was fabulous. It was brilliant. Um, so yeah, but that yeah, that's my other love. I, I've got my own um, as a hobby. I host a, a, a queer horror podcast as well. Oh yeah, seen um, that on your on your Twitter, yeah, yeah, which is a lot of fun to do. Um, so that's how I sort of indulge that side of me. But yeah, I'd uh, I'd like to. I'd, I'm hopefully going to get one of these horror ideas rolling soon. Tell, tell us more about the podcast as well. Uh, as I say, it's it's literally just a hobby. I, I, it was. About four or five years ago, um, I, I started listening to horror podcasts. And at the time, there weren't that many horror podcasts sort of geared towards a queer audience. I mean, now there are, there's, there's tons of them. But um, I thought, oh, I'm going to have a go at that. So I got together with a few friends. Um, there, were, um, there was me, my friend Martin Fennerty, Stephen Moore, and who we call our token straight, Jonathan Butler. Uh, <laughs> and... Um, we just got together and started doing it as a hobby. And then uh, it, it sort of went from there. So we've, we've recorded over 120 episodes now. Um, we've been going ever since. We sort of try and meet up once a month. Obviously, John on lockdown, that's got a bit tricky. Um, so it's petered out a little bit. And what I've been doing is because I'm using online software, which doesn't always work great with there's a, when there's a big group of people trying to talk at once. I've been sort of um, streamlining it, so I'll just do one-on-ones with people and get guests on and stuff to talk about horror. So so it's it's kind of evolved that way. But, uh, yeah, it's good. It's great fun. We don't get, like, thousands and thousands of listeners, but we get, we've got, like, a regular audience, which is, which is nice. Um, and as I say, it's just a hobby. We just do it for a laugh. 
Well, yeah. thanks for coming on today, John. It's been brilliant getting to know you and getting to know about Jerry Jezebel. Is, is there going to be other chances for people to get involved or how can they get tickets to see the rehearsed uh, re- reading? Of course, yeah. So the rehearsed reading is going to be on July the 2nd and 3rd. So it's a Friday and a Saturday night. And hopefully we're going to have um, Phila Crack, who was, the, who was a drag queen who, who does a lot of work with the Everyman. Phila Crack's going to be hosted a cabaret as well, which I think is going to be on the same night. So you get, so I think you've sort of get two for the price of one on that. Um, and you can get tickets if you go to the everymanplayhouse.com website, go on to uh, the What's On section. And uh, yeah, we're there July 2nd and 3rd. Um, the the reason will only be an hour straight through because obviously um, I don't want to I don't want to show all the tricks in the first go. It's, it's there to get feedback basically. I want to see what people like, what people don't like, and and um, hopefully work towards a, a full run, a full production. Um, um, we're announcing hopefully we're announcing the cast next week, but that's really exciting as well. Um, um, we're directed by the fabulous James Baker. Um, so yeah, it's it's exciting, and as I say, it's all been a massive sort of learning care for me whilst writing it as well. It's sort of given me a, a new respect for the generation below mine and the generation above mine, and I hope that people can come with a bit of an open mind and just enjoy filthy. It's I mean, it's filthy. It's it's absolutely filthy. Um, <laughs> it's filthy. It's it's unapologetic. It's very very queer. Um, but it it wears its heart on its sleeve. I think so. I'm hoping that people take it to their hearts. So I'm here today with Ejel Khan from the Muslim LGBT Network. How are you today, Ejel? Yeah, I'm okay, thank you. Thanks for coming on, first off. Like, because you're not actually based in Liverpool, are you? No, I'm based in Luton in Bedfordshire. But I think, you know... Obviously, what you're doing is so important and it will resonate with queer Muslims in Liverpool. And thank you for having me, by the way. Yeah, no problem. First off, what, what inspired you to found the company? I was inspired because I'm an activist anywhere. I've been a human rights activist, uh, intersectional activist for a quarter of a century now. And I've been involved in LGBTQ plus activism uh, for a while as well, you know. And initially I was approached uh, by an organization called Hidayah. They're another Muslim LGBT organization. They've been going for a few years now. And initially I was approached by them as well to see if I can assist them in any way, because they knew that I was an activist. Yeah. And before that I was involved with another group um, called Iman. Iman, another, they're the oldest actually, the oldest Muslim LGBT group in the UK. They were formed in 1999. Yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah, and I've marched with Iman, I've been involved with Iman as well. So I've been in kind of LGBTQ plus activism and politics uh, for a while now. So for me, the Muslim LGBT network was a natural progression, but its scope is a bit broader in the sense that obviously on social media and we can interact with people from all over the world and all over the UK. You know, like I'm doing with you today in Liverpool and people can listen to your podcast from all over the world. Yeah, you know, and so you start really trying to engage with people on a global platform. Was you founded in two thousand nineteen then? Yeah, but two thousand eighteen nineteen, I came together with uh, another friend of mine, and uh, we were interested in doing a social media uh, kind of group, an entity, which you know, and we share memes and content from all over the world, events as well, from all over the world. So 
our group is open to people. It's not just UK based, although I'm based in Luton, uh, where I'm speaking to you from. But obviously we have members from all over the world. And like, yeah, we've not been going that long. But like I said, I've been part of it. I still, I'm still a volunteer for Hidaya, which is another group they've been going. And, you know, I've been involved in Iman. So, yeah, although Muslim LGBT network as its own has not been going that long. You know, we're part of a network that is uh, 21 years old now, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Muslim LGBT activism has been going now for 21 years. But our organisation as itself, it's only been a couple of years. Do yourself, like what inspired your activism then? Well, I'm a gay Muslim man. Uh, I was born in Luton, where I'm speaking to you from. I still live here um, in Luton. Um, three generations of my family have lived in this town. And um, like I said, I was an activist initially, um, intersectional, in the sense that, you know, kind of overlapping nature of racism and being working class. I'm from a working class background. My father worked in a factory, you know, and my family all blue collar. People. I live in Luton, which is the birthplace of the English Defence League. It was also the headquarters of a, an Islamist group called Al Muadjurun, um, which is run by Anjum Chaudhry. And so, you know, Luton had, you know, a bad reputation in that sense. You know, it wasn't deserving, but it had a bad reputation. And for me, it was always counteracting that. I was inspired by, you know, uh, my own life experiences. But obviously, being a gay Muslim man took precedence because you know, particularly in the latter part of my life, because it's become a big issue within my community. Sexuality, you know, and our faith and everything that goes around it. Um, So that's really why, you know, for me, it was just a, you know, um, a natural progression. It was quite organic what's happened. You know, it's more of an evolution than a revolution, if you know what I mean. Definitely, yeah. And a lot of the conversation, um, I think that many Muslim queer m- might have, is that they are told to either choose between the religion sometimes um, or the sexuality. Do you find that's that's a common issue? Yeah, it is. I mean, what's happened is, you know, um, at times they've not both been compatible, you see. And you're right. You know, we've been chosen to choose. You could either be one or the other. You know, you can't be a practicing Muslim and you know, be a practicing homosexual. That's how they used to put it back in the day. But today, I think they understand better that, you know, there are people out there who are not going to change. You know, you can't just change your sexuality overnight. You're born like that, you know. And the community, obviously, they see activists, not just like me, because there's others like me, all over Britain and the world now. You know, it's a global solidarity movement. They realize that, you know, um, we are gay and we're here to stay. And... Yeah, you're right. In the early days, it was about that. It still is in many ways. There are still people out there who say that our faith and our sexuality is not compatible. And that's what we kind of rail against, if you know what I mean. That's the whole, our whole reason detra. That's why we are alive. And what we do, what we do is to tell people that, you know, um, you can be a person of faith and have a sexuality. Do you know, within the Muslim community then, do you think attitudes have changed towards gay people now? They have, because if you think about it, the Muslim, uh, British Muslim community um, has been around for a long time, ever since, like, colonialism, you know, yeah. ever since the early days when British rule, say, India, which is now India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, is one of the largest Muslim populations on earth, far bigger than Saudi Arabia, where Islam, you know, originated from. So, you know... Uh, we're a large community, we've been here a long time, but mass migration, obviously, more kind of um, post-war period. You know, after the post-war period, we started settling in the 50s and 60s, um, moreover. You know, but we've got lo- the large communities in Britain and 
they had to change the times because look at all the developments we've had within LGBTQ plus rights in this country from 67 onwards. 67, obviously, the legalization of sexuality. Then you had the lowering of age, age of consent, issue of partnerships come in, same-sex marriages. You know, there's been a lot of improvements in the sense that, you know, pr progression, you know, in um, LGBT rights in this country, you know, up to this day when we have same-sex marriages too. And the Muslim community are not immune to that. They see it. You know, even if they try to bury their head in the sand, they know um, that um, in the mainstream out there, you know, um, views have changed towards the LGBTQ plus community, but it's not always reflected in our community. You know, those views, you know, those kind of uh, progressive values are not always, uh, you know, uh, um, mirrored in my community. So as the Muslim LGBT network then, how are you driving to change them attitudes? I'll give an example like me. I was born and bred in Luton. We have one of the largest Muslim populations for our demographic, you know. Luton's a large town, but it's not a city, and it's got more than 30 mosques in attendance. You know, you have other cities like Birmingham, Bradford, you know, where um, you have a large Muslim population, East London. And I, I've actually campaigned in East London, because obviously it's, more, it's nearer to where I am, because I'm in Luton, just 30 miles from London. So yeah. I do a lot of campaigning in London and where I live. And, but obviously I, I went to Birmingham too. I, I was at the first ever LGBT and Islam intersectional conference. It was the first ever LGBT Muslim conference of its kind in Britain. Okay. It was a couple of years ago now. And it was organized by a, a gentleman called Karkin Qureshi from Birmingham. His father was a founding member of Birmingham Central Mosque, but he's an openly gay Muslim man who was born in Birmingham. He's 51 years old. And it's people like him who are, are driving that change. People like me. I'm going to be 47 in a couple of months' time. You understand? Like we are quintessentially British, English, call us what we want because it depends on like, other activists in Scotland and Wales. You know, so you know, you'll find the British Muslim community all over the United Kingdom. And we are leading that change because we've grown up in their communities. You know, we are telling them that we are not from some, you know, they, they can't other us, you know, when you other um, another human being, you know, that's when it happens. And we grew up with them, we've grown up in their faith, in their community. So in many ways, you know, we are the ones driving that change. Muslims are not inherently homophobic. They're no more homophobic than any other community. You yeah. know, our scriptures come from Christian and Judaic, you know, from the Judeo-Christian exactly. tradition. You know, the whole kind of story of Sodom and Gomorrah is rehashed in the Quran. That's what the people are reading. They're not reading any um, other scripture. And a lot of people don't understand our connections with the Abrahamic faith. We're part of the Abrahamic faith, you know. Um, you will see, like, you know, like I said, the Judeo-Christian tradition, that's where the story comes from, the old story, and that's rehashed in the Quran. You know, so um, that's, I recently, well, um, at the turn of the new year, um, I was part of a multi-faith service with an openly gay vicar, you know, and we, I participated in a multi-faith service uh, in London, you know, uh, as a part of my work. And that's what I do. That's how I engage with those communities. And you have to understand, you know, we're a work, largely working class community, the British Muslim community. You're, like I said, you find us in Bradford, in Birmingham, in those type of places, Leicester, London, East London, where I live in Luton, Wales, in Cardiff, and, you know. And so I engage with you on that level, you know. And it's not just a religious level, because I'm not a cleric or a scholar. But for me, it's sociocultural, you know, it's society and culture, you know, that I grew up in. I'm culturally Muslim. You know, in the sense that I've grown up in a faith community. So 
you know, um, we're all doing our bit. It's not just me. I can't take credit for that. But, you know, it's a growing movement. It's a global movement. It's a global solidarity movement amongst LGBTQ plus identifying Muslims. And it's happening in other parts of the world, you know. I mean, I give an example, like, you know, there's some countries where they have the death penalty for being gay. You know, and some of them are, are our allies, like Saudi Arabia and such like, you know. Others are not our allies, but, you know, there are countries we've had links with, you know. Um, so it's, it's, it's difficult. There's lengthy prison sentences as well in some countries, you know, um, for uh, people um, who identify as LGBTQ+. So it's different in different jurisdictions. Like I always tell people, like, you know, who are part of our group, say the Muslim LGBT network, to be wary of their own personal safety when they're posting things or messaging us or in their own jurisdictions, because a lot of things we do here in Britain, we won't fall part of the law because it's legal to post such things, you know, or to be out, you know, as a gay and a Muslim person or lesbian or non-binary, gender queer, you know. But it's not necessarily the case. So, like, I always, you know, uh, kind of, you know, state that fact that, you know, just be wary of your own personal safety and the laws within your own country. But what is changing is they are seeing us. When they see us in the West, people like me, who share their faith, you know, um, but they understand that we have a level of, you know, freedom that they don't have in their countries. They don't have that kind of same freedom to assembly as, you know, gay people or LGBTQ plus identified people. So we're very lucky. That's why I do the work I do and others like me do the work they do. It's because, you know, we have those freedoms and we're trying to use it positively to speak out, which we can. And I'm speaking to you. I'm in the UK today, you know, and I've got those freedoms to talk about my sexuality. Others don't. Have you ever, like, faced any homophobia yourself? You know, I faced violence, severe violence when I was young. Oh, really? And, yes, you know, I've been attacked, um, you know, many times. It's, for me, it was part of the course. You know, think about it. I'm nearly 47. I grew up in the 1980s and 90s, you know? Mm. So it was very different. Man. There was homophobia, you know, was rife. And that wasn't just in my community, you know? It was in the mainstream. Definitely. Community, you know, like... Yeah, so like, you know, for me, that was a long time ago, though. It's not, I don't get attacked now because I'm quite a, a well-known public figure now and I speak out, so I'm not, you know, it's not such a problem now. Okay, I might occasionally get the old, you know, I, I still get online kind of, you know, vitriol. I get hate speech online. But that's pretty much it. I don't really get any hassle outside there anymore because, you know, society has changed and that's it. It's not, it's not overt like it used to be. But I faced it when I was growing up. But we've come through it and there's a new generation and they're out and proud and they're not willing to take, the, you know, the same old rubbish that we did. You know, they're not willing to put up with prejudice, you know, as we did or violence or anything of the sort, you know, and we tell them not to, you know, to assert their rights, you know, not go outside and be um, deliberately confrontational. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm trying to say you can assert your own individuality, your sexuality, your identity, you know, without fear of um, consequence. Speaking about, like, prejudice and, and discrimination, another thing that, like, Muslim queer people have to deal with is obviously Islamophobia, which is absolutely rife in this country. It's disgusting. You know, that fight, that metaphorical fight I'm talking about has always been there. We didn't even want Christianity in this country. And it's similar with us, with faith. And they, we face it because, you know, outwardly, I am still, you know, a Muslim I, you know, I'm Asian, you know, and not all Muslims are Asian, I understand that. There are some Muslims who are white, and, you know, black, all different races and backgrounds, ethnicities within um, our faith. But predominantly, the, you know, the community in this country tends to be South Asian, 
Pakistani, Kashmiri, Bangladeshi, those type of communities. There's others like Yemeni and Somali. But traditionally, like South Asian communities are the biggest. We include Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, and Indian Muslims as well. We're one of the biggest communities. So, you know, outwardly, you know, I'm still a Muslim man. You know, I'm still identified as a Muslim man. And I face that too. So it's kind of a double whammy in that sense that, you know, outward in society, you know, I'm facing the same prejudices as every other Muslim. So I'm very wary not to feed into the narrative of the far right. When I criticize Muslims, you know, when it comes to sexuality, you know, uh, I have to have that balance where I don't want to feed into that rhetoric, you know, of hate speech, you know, because in reality, like I said, not all Muslims are not inherently homophobic. Some, some of them are indoctrinated into a certain belief system, but they're not, you know, uh, they're not inherently because I'm, I'm still a part of the community, you know, but I do face it in my own life, you know, before someone sees my sexuality, they see me, they see my colour, they see my, me, and I might be identified as a Muslim. I've got friends who are Hindus and Sikhs, and sometimes they identify as Muslims. Because like you said, rightly, you know, there's been a lot of hysteria in the media, you know, in terms of Muslims and terrorism, you know, and extremism and such like. And, you know, uh, the LGBTQ Muslim community, they're not immune from that either. Uh, we get it both ways. We get it sometimes from our community, and we get it from you know, the host community, you know, um, because if you think about it, we're a subculture within a, uh, a subculture. So, you know, Muslims are a minority. Why would people might think you're still a minority in this country? You know, uh, any estimations between like 4%, you know, the, between 4 uh, and 5%, you know, uh, Muslims in this country, in the whole population, you know, and we're a subculture. Was it September 2019? And there was actually a Muslim and LGBT pride, weren't they? Pride March. In, yeah, initially, um, there was going to be a Muslim pride. And, you know, we've been talking about it for a couple of years. And even last year, it was penciled in. You're right, they've been talking about it since then, like, you know, since 2018. So then, you know, that didn't really happen. You know, then 2019, because of, you know, the uh, pandemic, um, it got postponed. And initially, I was going to be a part of that, me and my friends as well, and people, colleagues that I knew. But Iman, they were organizing, you know, the oldest group, the oldest LGBT yeah. Muslim group, Iman, they were organizing it. Uh, but unfortunately, obviously, because of the pandemic now, that's not going to happen. I don't know if it's going to, because like, once again, they were going to do it this year. I don't think that's going to happen now. But it's still all up in the air, you know, because of what's happening, really. That's not because of any political kind of reason. It's mainly because of, you know, uh, safety and health considerations, you know, because of the pandemic. But it will happen, though, because I, you know, um, I've been contacted by different um, organizations and people, and there's been a move towards that. Um, you know, like you have Black Pride now, and you know, at first I wasn't too sure because you know, the whole LGBTQ plus movement in this country has become quite fragmented. You know, it's always been a broad umbrella group. You know, the acronym, you know, LGBTQIA plus. You know, encompasses a very broad, diverse people, and day by day, even with the whole kind of trans discourse as well that you know I was speaking about yesterday and you were speaking about yesterday too um, you know I see it and some some people are saying it might be polarizing to have a Muslim pride and you know I'm willing to listen to people and communicate and keep those channels of dialogue open because you know there should be a plurality of views I supported it in the sense that being Muslim being LGBT and we're part of a, a broader network do you know what I mean we kind of supported the notion of having a Muslim pride but I didn't want it to be divisive 
in any way, you know. But I spoke to other people who were part of Black Pride, you know, and they told me it's not. In the end, you know, uh, you know, it's uh, obviously much more of a celebratory atmosphere. But it's just the way things are going. You know, everyone's asserting the individual rights. So you're going to get Black Pride, you can get Muslim Pride, you know. And, you know, we, we, are, we should talk about it, obviously. You know, it's open to discussion, you know. Yeah, but you were saying that you were worried about it being polarising, but don't be like, if it's going to offend anyone, the only people that it's going to be offenders are probably white and straight, so they can just do one, do you know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah. it, who cares what they think? Like, yeah. I, I think there should be a Muslim pride and there should be a black pride because at the end of the day, Muslim queers and black queers, like, you use face homophobia, but then you also use experience racism, uh, Islamophobia, do you know what I mean? So I think it's important that we should be celebrating identities within the LGBT identity too, do you know what I mean? I think, I think it's really important that um, uh, like everyone should get a pride within the LGBT community, I think. Uh, anyone who is, you know, daily facing discrimination, who is not privileged because of the colour of the skin or is not discriminated against because of the religion. Do you know what I mean? Thank you, because, you know, I'm probably showing my age here, you know, because you're right, most of the young people I speak to, they're, you know, uh, they're well up for it. You know, they, you know, and it's all about that, isn't it? It's about, you know, asserting one, one's individuality, about, you know, being your authentic self. And, you know, what we spoke about even yesterday on trans visibility, yeah. Um, day. Um, it was about that, wasn't it? And, you know, I think it's a broader kind of discussion, obviously, like I mentioned about the whole kind of fragmenting, you know, fragmentation of the whole kind of LGBTQ plus um, initial movement and ideology. But you're right, it's, it's, it's happened, it's going to happen and people are going to celebrate the, their identities and we have to celebrate those differences. You're right, because we've not all had the same lived experiences. Yeah. You know, and I understand that when I speak to young people, you know, um, they're like you in the sense that they, you know, um, um, they support that idea because I think they've grown up with it. They've grown up with the idea that, you know, um, you can be black and um, LGBTQ plus or you can be Muslim and, you know, and celebrate those things. When I was growing up, we were all part of... um, you know, we felt like we were part of one homogenous community, if you know what I mean. Like we were all in it for the good fight together. So in those days, it was like, it didn't matter if you were black, white, or Muslim, or, you know, African or Indian. You know what I mean? You'd go to a gay bar and you congregate there. A lot of us would drink alcohol. We'd all, you know, even if you were not meant to, you know? And we'd, you know, congregate together. Because, you know, we felt we were all in it for the, you know, um, uh, you know the greater good. I do think um, it's still there, though. You know, I do. I, I still think that you know we're, we're, we are all part of the same community. For prides like uh, Muslim LGBT prides and Black prides need to happen. Just to you know, we need to bring attention to the issues that uh, Black queer people face or that Muslim queer people face. Yeah, because you've had that recently, haven't you, with London Pride? You know, and different um, kind of um, you know minority groups. And I don't know, BAME is not word like this. You know. Um, really popular now, but, you know, like, BAME groups were, you, you know, highlighting some of the issues they faced within London Pride, you know, yeah. the main, uh, you know, um, LGBTQ plus festival there in London, and, you know, about, um, just in general, really, but, you know, how to integrate it, and you're right, I think, you know, for me, someone like me who's grown up in the movement and now has come of age, I'm middle-aged now, you're right, today, 
I mean, the discourse has changed. There's been a sea change, you know, in terms of visibility for different communities, be it the trans community, be it my community, Muslim community. You know, we can all be who we want to be our authentic selves today. But I think it wasn't necessarily the case when I was growing up, because I had to be part of the kind of larger, you know, um, homogenous, you know, LGBTQ plus community. Because if we divided ourselves then, because we were still fighting for our rights, you know, I went to school under Section 28, you know, when Section 28 came in, which prohibited uh, the promotion of homosexuality in schools. I was 14, I was in school in 1988. You know, I was there, you know, when they had the leaflet drops in my house. I remember, you know, don't die of ignorance, you know, the AIDS um, promotional literature. Oh, yeah. They sent to every household. And I remember the history with AIDS growing up because I grew up in that time. I lost a lot of friends subsequently to AIDS and people I knew, you know. So um, that, that's why I think at that time, if we divided ourselves and, you know, um, it would not have been um, for, it would, not, it would not be conducive to, um, you know, our movement. But today is different, you're right, because society is different and we are, you know, a much more multi-faith, multicultural, you know, society. Um, it, back in the day, you know, I had to, I, I always felt like, you know, we were part of a bigger movement, if you know what I mean. I couldn't accept my own individual rights as someone who's Asian, Muslim. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you're like, yeah. And you're right, it's still there. That communal feeling of being part of a community is still there. But I think you can always balance, balance that now as well. You know, people still feel part of a, you know, um, a bigger movement, but um, they don't renege their own um, identity, you know, and that's how it should be. So I'm here today with my good friend Femi Lop. Femi Lop. <laughs> I don't know why I made that noise. Who is the presenter of All Things Femiism. All Things Femiism, which is a part of the Femiverse. Uh-huh. And what's the Femiverse? Um, the Femiverse is just kind of a no-judgment, good vibe zone. I just want it to be a free space where everyone's just kind of... I don't know, just like freeing themselves. I want it to be a space where people just come, tell me their experiences, and I hope they find it like, you know, therapeutic. I hope they feel like they've got something off their chest and they feel like, you know, this is a good platform for me to put this onto so that other people can hear it. Do you know what I mean? So, what are the type of things we're going to be hearing in All Things Feminism? The podcast is. I have started out, the first one was just about me. I wanted people to get to know me. I thought that it would be a good idea for you to be on with me as well because I feel comfortable around you and I knew that you would be able to pull the conversation back if I take it away, <laughs> which I always do. Um, and I felt really nervous. Like, I felt so nervous. I didn't think that people were going to be bothered because people aren't really that bothered about much these days, are they? The pandemic's kind of sucked the life out of us. So yeah. we're all just kind of, like, drudging along. Is drudging a word? Yeah, it was a sludging, sludging along, sludging, sludging, trudging, trudging, trudging. It is now. It's a word now. Plodding. <laughs> plodding. No, plodding. I know plodding, but drudging now. Sludging maybe. Hey, we're all just plodding. We'll go with plodding. Maybe edit that out. <laughs> we're all just plodding along, and um, people have actually been messaging me, being like, "Do you know what? Like, well done." And I really appreciate the support because I actually didn't think, like I said, people would be bothered. But 
everyone that's messaged me like I genuinely appreciate that they've taken the time to listen to it because I'm talking for a whole hour and I really didn't think that my voice would be that appealing to listen to and all the feedback I've got has been positive some of it's been constructive some of it I've just ignored because I'm gonna do my thing that is like that's what you want to do the podcast for isn't it because you've always felt like your voice wasn't like important and shouldn't be heard yeah. but it is so important and it bloody should be heard do you know what I mean bloody should be heard I sound like such a more than it fucking should be here. What's one of those? Look over there. Look over there. <laughs> no. Oh. No, but it should be hers. Yeah, I think and I think that's what I was be, was anxious about was because I know that people I am it's not that when I say it's not that I'm not heard, it's not that, you know, in general conversation people ignore me and that that does happen sometimes though. <laughs> But I mean, in terms of like, when I say stuff that I feel is of importance, people aren't bothered about it. Do you know when I say something, that say if I've worked with a child in a school and I feel like they need a certain type of support or something, it's just like, do you know what I mean? I'm, it's like I'm not making any sense or, something or anything. It's like, well, actually the kids kind of vocalise to me that they need this, this, that. So I'm passing it over to you as their, their voice. Do you know what I mean? Like take on board what I'm saying and it would just be like, nah. And yeah. it's like, do you know what I mean? In situations like that, so it was in employment. And I feel like, even in terms of like, if I've been speaking to a guy, I felt that when I've told them something that I feel like they've, if they've crossed a boundary as well, a boundary that I let's say a boundary, but I hadn't set the boundaries. <clears throat> but if they did something that I didn't like and I vocalised it, obviously I would go a bit cray in it. <laughs> <laughs> and my fingers would be tapping like. And then I'd send like 16 pages and be like, I need to send another 20 more. Once I got over that essay writing. Yeah. And I was still, and then I was able to just express how I felt, but in a way that I felt like I was still, do you know, like just leaving it open as a conversation. They would still kind of shut it down or they would still respond to me in a way that was like defensive or make me feel like I was in the wrong and things like that. And it's like, oh my God, do you know what? Do you want like, I can't be asked because I don't understand like and that that was something else as well that made me feel like do you know what do it like ex this is a way for me to express myself isn't it talking on a podcast is a way for me to just speak freely we should all feel we should all be free to talk out about how we feel and I feel like that's why I've done it and that's why I've opened it up for anybody to step forward I don't care like I said I don't care where you're from I don't care what your story is if you feel like your story is something that will help raise awareness or you feel like it's a way for you to express yourself come forward holla like I'm okay with that do you know what I mean we can book some time and we can talk about whatever it is you feel like you want to talk about I'm so happy to do that because I feel like everyone deserves a chance to say what they feel like needs to be said do you know because sometimes it sits heavy on your heart for some people i'm one of those people like if i haven't if i don't say how i feel yeah and i just leave it it festers in me i hate it i hate it it festers in me and then it like it niggles at me because i'm like i really want to tell them this or i really want to say that and then once i've said it i feel fine i'm not really that bothered about their response i'm quite selfish <laughs> <laughs> i was like yeah i've said what i've got to say no one's asked yeah. about your two pence keep it yeah, no. see you later yeah nobody asked for your input i just needed yeah. to get it off my chest if i like when people if someone said something to me that i've not liked um like i said on my podcast about someone calling me aggressive 
um, I just distanced myself from that person because I felt like even if I say to you how it's made me feel and that you're going to come back with something that to be honest doesn't really help the case do you know what I mean doesn't help the situation I'm still irritated by what you said <clears throat> but if that's what you perceived me as then unfortunately I'm going to have to take a step back absolutely like unfortunately yeah. if that's what you see me as then we can't be around each other because that's not who I am and if we're meant to be friends of some kind do you know then nah but then as well with the words aggressive like that like that should not be used why is that being used that's oh, I think that's automatically yeah, it's, it's it a was, microaggression do you know what yeah I mean? definitely it was at the time as well it was something that I'd stated that I didn't like um which talked about in the podcast as well because that's a, I'm talking about things that I feel like should be raised like it's things that are brushed off it's things that we just think oh like do you know what I mean like it did upset me and that but nah but it's okay okay so it happened to me but there will definitely be someone else who it's happened to that actually that situation wasn't resolved and it may be escalated for them do you get what I mean and like it's not nice it's not nice to have a stereotype I'm not saying that <clears throat> I'm the only person in the world, do you know what I mean? I, pu- I don't want people pure getting out their little violence for me and that. Well, if anyone's got any, get them out! <laughs> <laughs> Play us that Titanic one. Play us a tune! Play us a tune! <clears throat> um, so, nah, but um, I know that if I step forward and I talk about it, then mm. it might make someone else feel comfortable to come and talk about it. And that's my point. I want people to get to know me. Do you know this? I want people to get to know the side of me that is just. I'm quite um I'm quite like I'm open but yeah. I'm not. I'm a very closed off person but I'm actually very open to everyone. I, can't I, th- I think as, it. as well you're very like you're always interested in people and like their yeah. behaviour and how that like yeah. how they work, you know yeah. what I mean? Like the, the human nature the side human of things. Nature, yeah, like that's my that's where my interest in sex therapy and stuff come from because I'm so interested in human behaviour, like I don't it's not that um I don't like people. It's just that sometimes I find people fascinating and sometimes I find I don't. Do you know what I mean? I don't feel like I have to speak to everyone. Do you know like when you go out and pe- and stuff like that, I don't feel like everyone has to know me. But for my listeners, that's the side of me that people don't get to see. Even probably some of my friends have been listening and being like, oh my God, like, huh? Do you know what I mean? And they've learnt stuff. Some of my friends have been like, oh my God, like, it's raised this for me. Do you know, like, I want people to see that I'm like inquisitive and I'm open-minded do you know what I mean like I'm not judgmental but I also have an opinion but that doesn't mean that I'm judging someone just because I have an opinion on it there's a difference Mm. do you know what I mean like judging someone for something and having an opinion on it is a completely different thing like you come and tell me I don't know like say if someone came to me and was like oh my god I am literally a prostitute and I literally slept with 80 men in a week I'd be like, oh my god, how, how did you do that? I'd be like, tell me about all of them. <laughs> Which one was your favourite? <laughs> what colour were they? How big were they all? <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> yeah, like, who did you have the most fun with? Did you have fun? Do you know what I mean? Like, how much money did you make? Like, I would be curious about their experiences and. I would probably, I don't, yeah, maybe it's like, I don't think I have opinions, it's more questions I have. It's more like the whys and the whats and the ifs and the, not the ifs, and not the ifs and the buts, we don't like the ifs and the buts, but we like the whys and the whats and the whos and the wheres. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I like hearing about other people's stories and things because I find, I just think humans are fascinating. I think we're such an odd thing to be, like, we're just... 
humans think we think we're the best yeah we do we think we're above everything oh every my god other like, species and even the plants and everything we think oh we're yeah above. we're above everyone we're above the animals and all this stuff and it's like we don't actually know everything about who we are i'm learning about myself every day and i think actually that's why i struggled or you know when you said who do i want them to know like what do i want my listeners and these listeners who are listening now who do i want them to know like i don't know but let's see who you know let's see because i'm learning about myself all the time and i think that's what's fascinating about humans i think some of us are comfortable with who we think we are and we'll stay that person but others like to you know like explore the different like i'm exploring things about myself that I didn't even know like who knew i'd be interested in sex therapy like what on earth but i find it fascinating because i don't understand it yeah. and i want it I don't, obviously i don't want to well i do i want to like human behaviors towards sex and stuff in our generation as well oh it's it's all like not fake but we're kind of like it's porn what it all stems from is like the victorian era i think you know where they were taught to be ashamed of sex interesting and yeah like sex is the worst thing they could have possibly been been doing even though everyone was doing it it's kind of like the way now there's a underground drug culture it's not very underground because everyone's Mm -hmm. doing it do you know what I mean everyone's Mm -hmm. doing drugs the same way everyone was doing sex back in the Victorian era yeah so the same way that's taboo now and no one everyone likes to think that they don't but we all know someone who does yeah so that, and it's the same way in the Victorian era that like they were taught to be shamed you know instead of actually talking about it and then if you talk about it you can solve the issues that come with it then as well like obviously when all the Victorian uh, Victorians were doing it mm. they were going around ha- having sex weren't admitting to it weren't talking about it so they were passing on all this disease and stuff like that and then the same way with drugs now because oh we don't God. talk about it and we're taught to we we I taught to associate it with crime and with you know death death and all this bad stuff we don't actually like look into how it could be beneficial 100% but it's not only just like I did this in uni because I did a drugs and alcohol module and it was fascinating again um, everything fascinates me they're gonna oh my god sorry listeners all you're gonna hear me (laughs) say is it's fascinating it's fascinating (laughs) I find everything fascinating but it was actually fascinating because my lecturer said to me that if you drew, if you viewed all drugs as harmful you would mitigate the harms because actually look at how many prescribed drugs you can get that are highly addictive i i suffer from really bad periods yeah really bad like i'm i can't even like pain out of 10 28 do you know what i mean they give me codeine 30 milligrams of codeine right that's high i have to take three of them a day that's 90 grams of that's 90 milligrams sorry of codeine in my system of a hot that's highly addictive as well so each time then when i get a pain it's like oh the codeine will help but actually it just makes me drowsy i can't lift any heavy machinery i can't really be in work because i can't do anything um and i'm just basically a zombie See, and even with periods, I think there's such a shame and culture around it where girls are taught from a young age, ooh, you can't talk about that, they're disgusting yeah. by by men, by it's by and young lads who yeah. embarrass them and humiliate like little girls and they're thinking like what is completely natural 
is absolutely wrong and then you grow up then holding on to the shame and yeah, you know it doesn't get talked about all like, my friends who are men I will speak to them about my period whether they're squeamish about it or not I'm not bothered if I'm on my period and they ask me a question I'll be like yeah I'm in pain because I'm on my period or do you know yeah like I wasn't really very well because I was on my period obviously every time I don't be like yeah I'm on my period it's really bad I don't do that but I just mean sometimes if they ask I will say because I just feel like why would I why should I feel ashamed about it? It's actually something that's really bad. And actually one of them could have a girlfriend who suffers from it and they might not know how to help her, but who they're going to ask because it's a taboo subject. Do you get what I mean? Like, it's... It's like... I don't know, because in school, like, I suffered from them bad in school, but then I went on the pill when I was, like, 16. I want to say, yeah, like, 16, 15, 16, I went on the pill. And at the time, at that age, that was like, well, in our generation, I think that was the thing to do. Like when we were te- when I was a teenager, a lot of my friends were on the pill, and it seemed like the right thing to do. It seemed really helpful, do you know, because like, it stopped my periods because they were so bad that it stopped my periods, and it. But actually, like, it, it messed up my hormones. And these were drugs that were prescribed to me monthly though, and I had to take them every single day. So I took them every single day, yeah, Monday to Sunday for seven years. Jesus. Right, but that's prescribed from the doctors though, yeah. It can cause blood clots, it can cause this, it can cause that. But it's from the doctors though. I signed for it and I paid for it, so it's okay. Do you know what I mean? it's it's that's what i mean mm. like and i'm not saying that obviously some people are on contraception i'm not saying that it's bad like you know for me personally it just didn't work and there are complications with it as us females are now aware but in school you're not taught about the different complications and stuff you're not taught about the different things that go on with your body and stuff like with the cervical cancer jab you get that jab but then you have to get but then you don't get swabbed until you're 25 but actually girl, but actually you, it makes it it makes that you don't you're not it makes no sense to me so the the you get the cervical cancer jab when you're like what i want to say you're like 11 yeah or 12 12 12 you're in year eight yeah because i was in my middle school still so you're in year like, eight so 12 13 yeah right you get that jab yeah right then 13 years later after having you could have been sexual from the age of 18 then to 25 is then when you get the smear right but the smear is actually to check you for hpv which can be a sexually transmitted disease you can get that from men but it can cause cancer in women human papillomavirus is a very common group of viruses some types can cause genital warts or cancer human i'm just going to say hpv usually goes away on its own without any treatment get medical advice if you have any symptoms you can get you can get hpv from vagina anal or oral sex you can reduce hpv by using condoms during sex and there is also some types of vaccines for this virus but we were told it was for cervical cancer though it's really weird because you get you see so you get your smear but for me it makes no sense though because you can be sexually active from the age of like 15 so there could be girls right now out there teenagers though with it and they don't know i think it's friggin messed up it makes yeah. no sense to me so actually by the time they go for their smear they could have 
they could have cancer then. The smear age needs to be lowered anyway. It like, needs to be. You, we, it, it just. I do you think a smear age limit should exist? Obviously, I think after eighteen, like fan. Do you know what it is though? It's the experience of it though. Like it's what it is. It's it's like it's not just a little. <laughs> It's not, it's not it's not a big deal right I'm not gonna sit here and say oh my god it kills but for some people I can imagine because for me I really 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 didn't like it I really didn't like it Intrusive. Like, I really didn't like I really didn't like it I really didn't like it however my friend had it and she was like it was actually not that bad so for some people it's fine but yeah. imagine being a 15 year old girl having do you know being a virgin maybe yeah that'd and be traumatic yeah. do you know what i mean so i do understand however they need to figure out some other way then because like there are girls that are that age that are sexually active um that will probably they will need smears and stuff and they're getting and and do you know what else fuck smears we need to be getting the fucking kids in to get sti checked mate <laughs> like we need to get the kids in the fucking sex clinics That's do you know what thing, i mean like, obviously we've all been that age and there are kids who, who get up to it from a young age you know what I mean so we shouldn't be but I think that's school as well where you're shamed into not going to the clinic because you might see someone you know older or someone who might tell your family that kind of thing so well just sex isn't it again it's sex yeah. like me looking into this holistic holistic sexual well-being um taught me all about how um holistic sexual well-being was actually an ideal framework for sex ed mm. for young people because it has a positive approach it's not encouraging them to have sex it's encouraging them to be open to talk about it because there will definitely be things that teenagers want to ask that actually if they could ask it probably would help them now do you know what i mean it would help them right now though like it doesn't we can't you can't stop them but we can help them do you know what i mean i think especially for young uh, queer children as well like teens 100% I think that this, like, where's the sex education on it please apparently like um, there's more now ok well when so I was in school there wasn't any literally same there wasn't Nothing. any and that was only well 10, 10 years ago yeah, or 10 something. Years ago, yeah. yeah literally 10 years ago when we was in school I learnt nothing about um, the, anything the only time we ever did was when did you ever used to have is it like PhD yeah and then you'd learn um, I just learnt I didn't know I just learnt that no, I didn't learn about any gay sex. Like, I'm trying to. I mean, that was like generally when no, we were. No, I know, but I'm just trying to think about what, how, how was I educated on homosexuality? Well, like, I'm trying to how think. you educated on it, and I think it's from the start. It's not education. It's like kids are taught that gays are an insult. Do you know what I mean? Like everyone uses it on the school ground. Like gays, there's gay. Yeah, so yeah. it's bad. Well, it, it mightn't be like that anymore, but I feel like it was when we were younger do you know what I mean and I feel like it was. that's the only education you get is that gay is bad and you're taught to be yeah. ashamed of it and I think that's, that's why, why come out. yeah that's when why I, closet yeah but when I said to you look I don't understand why you've got to come out literally yeah. like where were yeah. you coming out from exactly you were born gay so why have you got to come out yeah I don't come out to my parents and be like mom dad I've got something to tell you I'm straight I like men I don't want to break your hearts, but I'm straight. Imagine. I will never. I think it's very me- metaphorical as well. It's like it's you do when you when everyone comes out the closet. You do. You do. You break. You evolve. Yeah. yeah, you do. You, that's when you truly begin oh. to embrace who you are as a as a person. Because for so long you've 
hidden that identity and you've suppressed it maybe we change the terminology then yeah like breaking free because i feel like coming out it makes it sound scary yeah because you're coming out of a closet and you're opening the door to something that you don't know mm. you don't know how people are going to react like you've just said as do you know like a closet it's that's safe isn't it then yeah. so it's like it's where you're hard you're hired yeah. so maybe that's why as well for young people coming out like i've worked with um young people who i think are struggling with who they are because they can't be who they are maybe it's the pressure of it's the it's definitely a pressure coming out yeah and maybe it's the terminology and things also how you've just explained it to me then that makes sense like you've had to suppress who you are and that but for me if i'm I, i'm not i'm not queer so i can't speak on it and i'm not trying to speak for do you know like the gay community or anything but if i was and i was coming out it would scare me coming out because it's like definitely if it's, I'm it's hiding, daunting yeah so maybe or daunting da so. daunting <laughs> oh my god so maybe you know like working do you know this might help me to be honest moving forward working with young people if i'm to come across a young queer person is that the correct terminology as well queer yeah yeah young queer queer, well, queer is an umbrella term is it okay yeah. Like, so that covers everyone yeah it, it can do you know people can it choose not to be it depends on if they can yeah. choose what they would like to be see all this I love this remember when I was asking oh I love it Um. so yeah so it might help me though do you know like maybe I can say to them what is it that because if it's like okay so for me I hide behind okay so my glasses say for example yeah I love the fact that I can wear glasses because I used to be really self-conscious about my eyebrows because Primark mashed them up this was like my mask. She <laughs> said, Primark mashed them up. Yeah. Primark mashed up my eyebrows. But for me, my glasses are like my mask. So, you know, like when you're in the closet, let's say, what, how do you hide who you are? It's how you, you act differently. You don't act differently, but you try and, you try and blend into the crowd more. Like, I, when I was cultures, I'd try and be more like the people who were around me to, you know, blend in and I didn't want any attention drawn to me. But like, don't get me wrong, I was a bloody attention seeker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a We know. Narcissistic oh, <laughs> tendencies. <We know. laughs> um, but, you know, like... Look, I think that's so sad that you, you feel like you just... Like, I'll never... I don't think I'll ever understand it. Obviously, I understand that we are in this world. <laughs> That's what this 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 world is just like that, isn't it? And I get that, but I just still will never understand it because for me, I've just I've never had I've never thought about it like that. Like I've never thought about if I'm around someone who's black, white, Asian, gay, lesbian, trans, as long as they're not a twat, I'm not bothered. Do you get what I mean? It doesn't matter what your sexuality is or the colour of your skin. If you're a dickhead, you're a dickhead. And I don't get why you being gay would make you a dickhead or make you something. Do you know what I mean? Like how people don't like gays and things like that. They they want to like target you and you get so much things thrown at you as a community. Why? But then that's the same for you as well. Well, yeah. Like, well, you yeah. also, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. what do we always say about each other? Like, yeah, we do. With the minority misfits. 
I think that's true. why you and me relate so much though, because I think... We do, because we get it. Yeah, we get it in different ways. We've went through what we understand, do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, what it is like to... Be discriminated against. Yeah, for certain that... You were born with. Yeah. That I was born black, you were born gay. Yeah. What were you supposed to do? Yeah. And what's wrong with that anyway? I feel like people think that, like... I feel like people actually think that, you know, when, um, like, a young person comes out, I feel like people think that they've, like, signed something. Do you know people are like, no, it's a phase. They didn't go to the shop and buy a cardigan. <laughs> yeah. And just be gay, do you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. not, it's not like, this is who they are, they were born. This is who that. This is them. They're a per. I don't. They're still. A, you're still human. I just can't. I just love. You know what though, as well. I think that's what is important about like coming out is and um, why I have that sequence of confession from the closet is because yeah. you know I want people to be able to talk about something that you know it's it's very therapeutic. I think um, for queer people to talk about that because whether you know they didn't come out in a way where they're telling people they just naturally became who they were or they did come out by telling the family or the friends like mm. it, it's very therapeutic because you look at the progress that you've made since coming out and it's it's so you grow don't you yeah because whether it should be there or it shouldn't be there it does exist let's be honest and it's not going anywhere anytime soon because there's still homophobic people out there and yep. so it's always going to be there and we shouldn't be ashamed about it or no. you know like we should celebrate our coming yeah. out because it is a it's a big thing it's the birth of your yeah, true authentic self breaking free yeah. I think it should be called something like the transformation period or like I don't know I've, I'll come up with something I reckon and maybe and I'll get it coined because I just feel like coming out of the closet I feel like because of how you're explaining it to me yeah, it's like a whole it's like a, your soul it's like a spiritual journey it's not just coming out of the closet you are pure breaking some shackles and shit like that's powerful like it's powerful and I think that like hats off to you all because I don't know the struggles I didn't have to come out I came out black well I actually didn't come out black you know I actually came out looking quite white and then I went dark did you? yeah I'll show you a picture later I swear down I was literally born I looked mixed race and then I literally just like my mum said that my ears were dead dark and then the colour must have just morphed off the rest of my face <laughs> but anyway you know what I mean but do you know what I mean like because I think that actually I've never had to tell anyone that I'm straight. Well, I have when the lesbians try and move to me in the club and that. <laughs> and I'm like, no, honey. No, no, no. That's why I'm with the gays, because I like the penis too. Do you know what I mean? But, I, um, but I've never had to say to anyone that I'm straight or be like, yeah, I'm black. But you have to, t you, you have to come out to your family and your friends and you guys have to tell then, them. Yeah, but then I think as well, I have a privilege in a sense because like you just said like where I don't have to come out as gay whereas you obviously you can't how can you then say oh no I'm not do you know what I mean yeah like so then you're automatically facing these pictures from you know racist people or true so true and I can't actually hide that I'm black that's what I mean like you can't you, you can't hide your blackness like I can't hide my blackness but just as much as you can't hide, hide your queerness you say no, that no but then I have the privilege because I can because you, you can I could I could I suppose yeah actually. do you know what I mean oh, I could yeah. be my closeted self and Duh. oh yeah so oh yeah yeah so do you know what I mean like I think that that's why I think like black people's struggles is the most important at the at the in the world at the minute because 
Black like Black Lives Do Matter. They do. do you know what I mean? Like another boy died as well. I know. I seen that. Dante. I think. Yeah, Literally Dante. not even a year. I know. No, it was. It was. It was something. It was something to George Floyd. Something was happening. I don't know if something was happening with George Floyd. No, but my, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because actually, what month are we in now? Got shot. We're in April now. Yeah. Um, and he, another yeah, and another young boy got shot as well. This artist did a picture of him. I think his name's Adam. It's fucking. It's. It's crazy. And I listened to ZZ Mills, and she was talking about two black girls that went missing at the end of last year. And nothing, but like nothing. I didn't see it on the news. I didn't see it anywhere. I saw nothing about it, and I can't stress it enough that people, please, like wake up. Like when people say to me and that, and they're like, "Oh, it's not about race, doll." <laughs> oh, it makes me want to like just poke them in the eyes or something, or poke them in the ears, and just be like, "Listen, open your eyes. It's always about race." It's always been about race. We can't scream it any louder. It has always been about race, whether people like to believe it or not. Britain colonised Africa. Yep, Britain colonised the whole world. Did they? Basically. Well, yeah, basically. But they enslaved that country, yeah. yeah. They enslaved them. They put them in chains and they treated the people like animals, right? For what reason? I think that... Well, when I brought my uncle over from, my uncle came over from Jamaica, yeah, and I said that mum was a whore, we're going to bring him to Liverpool to see him and that, and I was so excited, he's my granddad's brother, yeah, I was so excited and that. And I was like, tomorrow, mum, do you reckon we take him to the slavery museum? Mum was like, yeah, that'd be nice. So I was like, yeah, let's take him. Oh, God. He was literally in there and he was like, ah, <laughs> oh, these white people should be ashamed of themselves. He was like, their ancestors were not kind and all this stuff walking around and then... He was like, he went over to the Jamaican part and he said that he felt like they were missing stuff. He said that he felt like they hadn't touched on it enough. But there's only a tiny bit about Jamaica. But I actually learned the other day about um, Trinidad and Tobago, um, the slaves over there. I learned something about, oh, they started a festival and stuff with masks to um, mock the slave owners and that. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. But, like, obviously I knew that most countries where black people have... We, where we come from were enslaved I'm learning new things all the time about the actual countries because I've only ever really learned about Africa and Jamaica growing up do you know but actually Trinidad and Tobago Barbados well Barbados <laughs> <laughs> Barbados Barbados um, do you know all those places I find it really I find it sad but it's interesting because as a people look at where we are like well I say look at where we are fuck me we're not that do you know what but I suppose we're not shackled, are we? Do you know? We're not enslaved. But I think but there's, like, mentally shackled. Like. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. There is such a mental strain on the black community. We're having to watch people. Like, no, okay, that guy in America, he wasn't my family, no. But actually, he looked like my cousin. He's black. It doesn't matter whether his facial features no. are the same. In Britain, the race reports, the fact that, like... Oh, my God. What? Like, how dare... Like that is just one audacity. Like they need to look into that. They need to. I know. Because that could, there's no way at all, absolutely no way in hell, and not one person in this country could honestly say that that report was like was true. No. Loads of shades. Loads of shades. But 
Yeah, no, it is a crazy world we live in. We are filled with discrimination constantly, and I think that's why. And do you know what else as well? I actually would love to say whilst I'm on this platform, um, is that if there are any black queer people that would love to come onto my podcast and speak to me about their experiences, I have a lot of questions. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Good questions though, you know, just curious like about their experiences because I can imagine that fucking hell, being black and queer. That's what you mean you're dealing with fucking... Wow. Well, well do you know what um olivia norma I know say olivia. yeah he was on last episode like just hearing about her experience as a black queer woman like because it's, it's not even just being black being queer it's also being a woman yeah oh my, oh my god like you know what i mean like oh. this is and the fact that we're like oh my god it's not all, do you know what i mean like it should just be like yeah she's black she's queer she's a woman but actually it's like oh my god girl you're black you're queer and you're a woman do you know like all those those like, that's what i mean they should be I mean? celebrated but I mean. instead it should be like, like yes yeah but actually it's like oh my god do you know what i mean yeah. like it's good that she's all those things but actually in society it's hard for her so where can we hear all things um so it's actually really exciting it's so weird for me and <laughs> um, so it's actually on apple podcasts and it's on spotify I've not got any visuals yet because I'm not there yet, you know. I'm not that confident yet within my um within this craft. I'm learning, aren't I? Mm. I'm a little baby poddy. Little yeah. baby podcaster. So well so is Lars and Flower, to be honest. It is, isn't it? Only what, seven months? Oh six months. Amazing yeah. though. I think it's amazing. Five months. I love it. I love that this is a platform for the queer community i think it's amazing do you know what i mean like that's a movement in itself like yes come on here tell that story sing your song (laughs) (laughs) that's all for this week's episode thanks again for listening and thanks again to all the amazing guests for coming on and sharing their experiences, being fantastic to hear them. You can listen to this podcast on a variety of platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. We're also available on Apple TV. So if you want to follow us as well on social media, our username on all platforms, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook is at loud and proud in. And then if you want to email and get in touch, you can email us on loudandproudin at gmail.com. So yeah, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.